Hello and welcome back to the Not So Fit Couple podcast with your hosts Lucy Davis and Benjamin Holden. So welcome back to today's episode where we're back recording in the wonderful Gymshark Regent Street store with Dr. Hazel Wallace, a junior doctor, personal trainer and Instagram sensation, better known as the food medic. Dr. Wallace is also a registered nutritionist and best-selling author with her new book, The Female Factor. In today's podcast, we talk about why women experience stress differently to men, how to train around your period, Hazel's everyday tips for better sleep, how gut health is linked to stress and anxiety, and why women are not mini men. Please continue to subscribe via YouTube, Spotify, and Apple as it really helps us and makes us happy. And enjoy today's app. <laughs> nice to meet you. So first off then, Hazel, what made you want to become a doctor? What kind of ignited that passion in yourself? Um, it's a long story. So when I was 14, my dad died from stroke, um, which was obviously quite devastating. I was super young and it was completely unexpected. So around that time, I guess I was starting to think about what I wanted to do with my life. And I decided in that moment that I wanted to be in healthcare in some way. So that started my journey into medicine. Um, if you haven't guessed from my accent, I grew up in Ireland. Yeah. And I didn't actually get into medicine, into university in Dublin, which was my first choice. So I moved to Wales and I did a degree in medical sciences for three years. And then I went into graduate entry medicine in Cardiff. So it was like quite a convoluted journey, but I really wanted it. So mm. it didn't really didn't really mean much to me having those extra years um so that was really the reason why I got into it and I guess for people listening they might want to know why like how that brought me to do the work that I do now my brand's called the food medic which I started in medical school 10 years ago as well and um it's because stroke and heart disease and cancer and a lot of the diseases that we die from today have a huge lifestyle component and we'd learn about this in medical school or we'd we'd pay lip service to it but you wouldn't really go into great detail doctors don't really know much about nutrition or physical activity and so I wanted to help bridge that gap like first and foremost I am a medically trained doctor pills and surgery are my bread and butter but I do think that there's this place that for lifestyle and environment that we were just completely missing um so that's why i started my brand it's like the whole whole ethos of what i do i also retrained as a nutritionist so that i could kind of combine both my practices together and that's why i'm here today (laughs) we've i don't know if you know dr mike Mm. but we've had him before and he's kind of spoke about this this space before Mm -hmm. in terms of especially gps of maybe how there's a lack of education that rounds in terms of the lifestyle and I suppose more health and fitness and personal training. How have you kind of found that your experience has been in that arena? And do you think it's the same in terms of it's lacking in terms of the education that's there for GPs or doctors around, I suppose, health and fitness? Yeah, I think it is. And like when I first started the food medic, I was like really naive <laughs> I thought like I was going to change the world as a doctor and I trained as a PT I did my master's in nutrition and I was like I'm going to be this like hybrid doctor and cures everyone no one will ever get sick or die mm. and that is just completely beyond what any one doctor could do or even what you could do with the medical curriculum because you're already sandwiching so much into 
five to six years of university. So I don't think the answer is like retraining our GPs as PTs or like getting them to do these extra years. But I think there's like this collaborative space perhaps mm. where we can get more information in there, get more support for people who are just visiting their GP for the first time and they've mm. got back pain or high blood pressure, or high cholesterol. And before we kind of get to the pill stage, maybe we can talk about getting them in the gym, changing their diet, talking about stress management, like those really like kind of like low hanging fruit that could change people's lives massively. Yeah. You touch on a lot of women's health um, is one of your big focuses, which mm. I think is amazing because definitely from my perspective and growing up in sport and things, I had a massive lack of knowledge, just didn't really understand. And I'd go to the doctor and they also sometimes wouldn't understand the certain issues that I was having. Did you just naturally fall into women's health a little bit more because it was an interest of yours or it's just something you prefer to study? I kind of fell into it. Um, it's not my area of specialty in that I didn't specialize it in medicine. Mm. And at the time of when I really got interested in it, I was working as a nutrition doctor um, in a hospital up the road and then the pandemic happened. My interest in women's health really stemmed from the fact from not only my experience with the healthcare, um, with healthcare, but also treating lots of women in, in health and healthcare and seeing these differences between how I treat male patients. And I found it really fascinating, first and foremost, that there was this discrepancy. And mm. so around that time, and this is about three years ago, a lot of research was coming out in that like women were having poor health outcomes when they leave the hospital. For example, in heart disease, like women are 1.5 times more likely to die from it. And I was like, why is this, why? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, at medical school, all we learn is that like the only difference is our ovaries and that's it. And like the fact that we can have babies, there's no other differences spoken about, but like on a cellular level, we're completely different because of our hormones, our physiology, our anatomy. And so I, I started researching and then ended up writing this book, The Female Factor, which basically just like, unveils how females and males are so different and how even though we experience the same conditions like depression anxiety heart disease we experience them very differently we'll present differently we might need different treatment the issue is most of our medical research is based on a male body historically like a 70 kilo white male would be like the prototype from years and years ago and that only changed maybe in the last 10 years but that hasn't changed how we practice and so women aren't getting the same treatment. They, they're often like not listened to, even down to how like when it comes to pain, like women will be less time, they'll be less likely to pres prescribed painkillers because we're seen to be like quite hysterical over the top. So there's all these like, it's not just biology, it's like these gender stereotypes yeah. we have of people. Well, we, did, we did a podcast a couple of weeks ago and we were looking at the difference between men and women when it just came to weight loss, resistance training, um recovery general health and that was one of the things that we noticed that there wasn't nowhere near as much research in terms of female body why why do you think this is and why do you think this was that it's it's just not being studied as much originally as as a female there's like three main reasons the first is because we've got like fluctuating hormones it's like a nuisance to control foreign studies so that's one reason the risk of pregnancy um is another thing so it's a bit of an ethical nightmare and the third reason, which isn't as valid anymore, is that women are 
generally primary caregivers so they like have kids to look after um look after and so they're less likely to come to studies so they're less likely to be recruited mm-hmm. and also just the really ignorant assumption that we're just smaller men so they've been like well it's fine we'll just extrapolate it to women just assume that we're, we're the same I feel like you just literally read my yeah, <laughs> next where, question because I was going to say I know when we're looking at the menstrual cycle as well and you've said before that how women aren't many men what I was going to ask is like what, what do you what do you mean by that yeah so what I mean I guess what I said initially is that like even down to ourselves we're very different so it's not just our hormones it's our physiology our physiology and anatomy and as those hormones fluctuate across the month, that will change how our body functions. I think we think about like estrogen, testosterone, progesterone as just sex hormones, mm-hmm. but they influence everything like our brain health, our mood, our gut health, how our heart works. Um, and so we'll see those changes across the cycle. We'll see it across the female lifespan after the menopause. And these are really important things that we've not really accounted for until now. And so, like you just quite rightly said, we don't really have much research. We've got little bits and we're just kind of scratching the surface. So we're only learning now that like there'll be certain points in the menstrual cycle, for example, where your metabolism will be higher, you'll burn more calories, or there'll be certain parts parts of the menstrual cycle where your muscle building potential will be higher. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really empowering to understand as a female, Mm -hmm. um, because I think a lot of the narrative is like, your menstrual cycle is just your period. It's a really terrible thing. There's nothing we can do about it. You're in like your hormones are in control, but actually you can like almost hack that if you really understand it and you know when to put your foot in the pedal and take the foot off the gas. Just with your cycle there, cause I think we've briefly touched on this, but obviously your knowledge will be mm-hmm. a lot better than ours. You obviously have your four week cycle. So I'm thinking about all our female listeners, how to advance your training with your cycle if you can just touch on that a little bit, I think they'd find it really, really helpful just to understand. I know everyone is yeah. a little bit different, so it's a bit hit and miss, but just the general phases and when you feel strong and when you're a little bit weaker. For sure. So um, most of the research is based on women who are naturally cycling, so they're not on any hormonal contraception, although there's a little bit of um, research there. So if we're talking about someone who's not taking any pills or anything, Typically, you you would have a 28-day cycle, but anything between 21 to 35 days is really fair game. So don't panic if you're not like bang on 28 days. If we use that as an example, then you'll have two phases, your follicular and your luteal with ovulation in the middle. And so across these uh, phases, you'll have fluctuating hormones. And at the very first, the very start, when you're in menstruation, which is the very first half of the follicular phase, that's your lowest hormone phase. And when the most recent evidence, which pooled all the evidence we have together, suggests that that's when there are dips in performance in both endurance and strength training. And it makes sense because um, estrogen is actually really beneficial when it comes to mood, energy, motivation, and, and strength. Um, in that second week, in that kind of late follicular phase, that's when estrogen rises and peaks just before ovulation. And that's typically when we see the strongest uh, or the biggest strength gains. So muscle building potential, motivation, energy. And um, there's been some studies which are really interesting where they'll compare follicular based training to luteal. So you kind of like 
um, backload lots of your sessions in those kind of weeks. And it shows that you can actually gain more muscle in that way. Oh, wow. I'm not saying everyone should do that. I'm just saying yeah. it's interesting, like when you yeah. do hack it. And you see the same around ovulation because testosterone has a little bump. So you get like a little bit more kind of energy to lift heavy things. Then after that, when you go into their luteal phase, the first part of it, there is some kind of cardio respiratory advantages. So maybe endurance training would be better there just that first week. But then as progesterone rises, it kind of counteracts estrogen. So they're both high at this point. And that can make you retain more water, feel more sluggish. Your sleep is also worse at this time. Your body temperature is worse at this time. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you actually burn more calories at rest. So your metabolism's higher. Um, so with that, you'll see you'll want to eat more food. You'll have higher cravings. Um, and then later in the month, PMS symptoms will come in. So bloating, tender boobs, cramps, feeling emotional. And that would be when I would kind of say, maybe this is a deload week mm -hmm. or, you know, drop your intensity. That said, exercise can be hugely beneficial for offsetting PMS symptoms and menstrual cramps. So if it feels good, then just do it. I'm not one for prescribing exercise yeah. based on your cycle. I think it's more about you being a detective and understanding when you feel great, when you feel less great, I guess. Mm -hmm. I think we spoke about before about maybe there being a lack of education to some degree for like GPs for, for giving general advice. But I think that's one of the biggest things that you touched on there for personal trainers is that none of this stuff, especially as a as a male PT, and I've coached a lot of women over time, it's, it's not something that you're ever taught in the, the, the personal training curriculum. Yeah. So you are training everyone exactly the same irrelevant of the menstrual cycle and it's something that i then had to go away and do my own research on and learn to be able to speak to clients have check-ins to understand these different phases in the cycle of when some women were, were putting on weight some people weren't losing weight some people were even getting injured during the the luteal phase and feeling like they weren't making progress and they didn't understand they didn't understand why as well and i didn't understand that. i think that's still a gap in the fitness industry yeah with even training personal trainers to understand women better when they're lifting yeah because it's just something that again kind of goes under the radar and then i feel like a lot of women who are going to personal trainers for that experience and that knowledge there's, there's still going to be a level of ignorance there to where they're not fully taking advantage and maybe they feel like they're doing something wrong yeah yeah i completely agree and i think like even speaking from my own personal experience um once i started to understand this really fully it really helped me kind of be more compassionate as well towards myself and in my own training um, because it's really easy to kick yourself because you're feeling rubbish. But like if you really understand what's happening and there's an explanation for it, it really helps you conceptualize things. And I think if both like male and female trainers are aware of these changes, um, it really helps you program for your clients as well. And like Absolutely. understand if they are doing kind of any form of like dieting or anything in their weight, their weighing themselves regularly it's really important that you're factoring that in that there will be more water retention at that kind of phase of the cycle for example sorry just talking about men and men and women as well i know that you're into your running <laughs> do you know do you know courtney do water she's like an ultra runner but like yeah. a sick ultra like, runner ultra <laughs> she's, she ran she's a an animal but like she, she beats like all the men in the races like she's just awesome yeah she was having a conversation on a podcast about how i think the longer the duration of the course became, the smaller the gap between yes. men and women became in terms of, was there any logic or science behind that? Yes, I love this topic. Um, 
And I looked into it from a book. So, you know, like typically when we're exercising, we'll either use carbohydrates or fat as our main source of fuel. That's holds true for men and women. Um, the higher the intensity, the more preference for carbs. So at like lower intensities or moderate intensity, you'll use fat. Women can actually use fat at higher intensities compared to men. I'm not saying high intensities, but they can hold on to it more. So in long endurance training, they're less likely to hit the wall because they're not just tapping into glycogen stores or carbohydrate stores. They can also tap into fat. And so as you, there's a huge performance gap still in, in sport and exercise for men and women, but it's so true that the, the gap is more narrow when it comes to like the most extreme ultra races, especially if it involves swimming because we're like physically better built for swimming, but also cycling and running. There's still a gap, but women are better able for endurance sports. I guess that gap still comes down to the, the two factors of maybe testosterone and men just being born bigger. Yeah, women. that's true. So like um, male hormones will change you from a, like from birth. So you will grow to be, you'll have kind of higher muscle building. Well, actually muscle building potential is the same between the sexes, but men can put on more muscle per pound. Um, and also it's down to the different types of muscle fibers as well. So that's another reason though, why women are better fit for endurance. We've got more type two versus type one muscle fibers. Do we fatigue less as well? Yeah. We don't fatigue as quickly as guys. Yeah. So if you look at like marathon times, you'll see that men will finish typically faster, but they'll start off fast and slow down. Women are better at holding a pace consistently. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense with us. That's why I can outrun you. Um, But just before we jump away from the cycle then, just one question regarding contraception because I'm personally on contraception. I'm coming off soon Mm. um, before we personally try for kids. But it's always asked me and I don't openly share it on social media because I know... I know it's different for everyone and everyone has different experiences depending on what they're on. But is there any, I know you said there's a little bit of research, but anything into training on your cycle if you're if you're on contraception or is it just a bit? It's a mix? bit, um, there's not as much research, but there is some research. And basically if I'm like to summarize it, it's some women will find uh, dips in their performance whilst taking the pill versus uh, pill-free days. Mm and some women won't. And so the answer is it's really just down to you. Whilst taking hormonal contraception, it depends on which type you're taking, but it will obviously blunt that natural cycle. Mm -hmm. You still may feel some fluctuations, so you can still technically track and see what happens. So I'm very much um, like a believer in like all women should be informed of these changes, but it's very individual. So understand like if if it affects you or not, because some women will be on the pill because they've got really heavy periods. And Mm -hmm. if that helps them train better, then, you know, that's a big win versus the very minuscule training that, or very minuscule effect that the pill might have on muscle building potential, for example. So it's very individual, but you know, maybe if you're a high performing athlete, you want to squeeze out 1%, you might then consider choosing a different form of contraception. Yeah, because I think with, I first went on, I had the coil when I was 18 I was really young to get it fitted. And the only reason that I did is because British swimming, my oh, coaches yeah. said to. And I thought, I was like, okay, I don't have another option. Then I'll just have to do that to make everything better for my swimming career. And that's the only thing that I look back on and think, I don't feel like I had much of a choice. It was more so 
get get her on contraception, doesn't matter what age she is, doesn't matter, what, just put her on contraception. Mm. So that's the only thing that I think at the moment, and I don't even know if you agree, but girls who start their periods and they're young, like 14, 15, the first kind of answer is put you on contraception. Um, but I was just curious about your thoughts on that. I think it is, it's super individual. Uh, I definitely think that there is, it's it's a really tricky conversation because there's a right now I don't know whether you've experienced this but there's a lot of like pill bashing online mm-hmm. and not all of it is really founded you know and I'm I'm the most honest person that will speak to you and I'm saying this as a doctor and a woman that you know it's not these um forms of hormonal contraception ha- have helped narrow the gender gap they've allowed women to go back to work they've allowed us to kind of perform against men are they for everyone no I don't think so and I think that's the most important question like women need to be better informed they need to be aware of the side effects but we also need to make sure that we're not like completely dismissing things that have been super helpful for a lot of people as well yeah I agree because I I mean mine's been really helpful and I haven't really had the worst side effects but I'm also really excited to have a natural cycle again well that's I can't it. wait I can't wait for it yeah and I think but. that's such a beautiful thing as well because no one ever and no one ever talks about enjoying their menstrual mm. cycle but actually yeah it's not like it's going to be the best thing all it's across the month it's not great but like I think it's a really wonderful thing once you understand it and you mm-hmm. get to really feel it especially if you've been on hormonal contraception for a long time and you feel it for the first time it can be a really powerful thing yeah one of the things, two things I feel very lucky about is being a guy that I don't, don't go through that and giving birth. <laughs> yeah, but that's true. We were speaking on the way down about stress because me and Lucy recently. <laughs> me and Lucy are stressed. <laughs> <laughs> that, that as well. We started doing ice baths, I think, as a lot of people did a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. More of a kind of that mental side of it. It's, I think for others, definitely had a, has a positive effect on our mood, especially in the morning. Yeah. On that. I know that you spoke about it before, but how does stress affect men and women differently? Yeah, this is really interesting. Um, so when it comes to like stress and anxiety and depression, women are actually twice as likely to be to experience anxiety and depression in their lifetime. So that's like a huge increased risk. And it doesn't seem to just be down to biology, but also bias and and also kind of social norms, how men and women should be expected to deal with stress. So men tend to be like quite stoic. If they do get very stressed, they'll turn to like external behaviors like um, alcohol, for example, and acting out, whereas women will internalize and they'll like ruminate or they'll like speak to their friends. So we deal with things differently. Um, and whether that's just how we're brought up or how we do it innately, we're not like really sure. There's definitely a combination of both. But on a physiological level, there's some evidence that um, like men are more reactive. Their like stress response is more reactive, whereas women have like a more blunted response. And we'll see that change across the menstrual cycle, whereas um, we'll see like different cortisol levels related to the menstrual cycle. So there's all these things, but we don't really have a full picture yet as how different we are. The other thing I think that like I think is really important to mention is and it kind of goes back to how we assume men and women behave. Um, Yes, women are more likely to experience anxiety, but they're more likely to be prescribed um, antidepressants than men are for 
even if we're accounting for the numbers of people who have anxiety, they're also more likely to get a psychiatric diagnosis for a physical problem. And if it's really sinister when you step in and look at the research, because um, you'll find that they'll look, they'll kind of do these studies where both men and female participants will present with the same symptoms and doctors are more likely to give men like um, investigations like x-rays, but they'll give women anti-anxiety meds or lifestyle advice and send them home for the exact same symptoms. And it's it comes back to this narrative that we just assume that women are like hysterical, anxious, and I'm not dismissing it. I have anxiety myself. I do think like there's definitely something biological there, but it shouldn't be the diagnosis of default. And I think like we need to kind of move away from that narrative where we're dismissing women and their feelings. I'm so surprised that that's <laughs> like still a thing though, because what? I, know. I didn't even, you think maybe from like the 1950s or 1940s, maybe there'd be a, but yeah, to hear it now. There's also stereotypes, even in sports, like if a, a woman's seen as like to be masculine or aggressive, like it's it's promoted. There's a guy, but then a woman seeing as like a bitch, or she's mm. she's being too OTT, or she's being dramatic. And I think there's, there's definitely differences in the way that people are viewed, even in sports. So I can see that how that would definitely yeah. carry across into into the medical world as well. So do you think it falls more heavily into like the nature or nurture debate then in terms of stress responses? And do you think that's something maybe for women that has been heightened even more so than men, with just the way that we have evolved in society and the way that things are with media, the way that the, the world's so fast paced at the moment. Do you feel like, it, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the two sexes deal with those kind of things differently as well? Yeah, I definitely think there's, I think it's both biology and, and kind of like more um, social and gender norms of what we, what we kind of are used to. And I think it, it's not just affecting women, it affects men as well, because if like we, if men still believe they can't like be open and honest about their feelings that, then that has really devastating consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's both, but what when you kind of like listen to what the narrative is, it's always that women are controlled by their hormones. So like if a woman's moody, it'll be like, are you on your period? Or, you know, if a woman's moody when she's pregnant, it'll be like, it's just pregnancy hormones. But it's really interesting because even when it comes to PMS, which premenstrual syndrome and PMDD, which are both like gonna affect your mood around your cycle. Yes, your hormones can be tied to your mood, but the biggest predictors are your relationships and your social support. So even stronger predictors than your hormones. And I think that's a really important message for women because we'll find that women who are in supportive relationships are less likely to report really debilitating mood symptoms. So around that time, that's one way you can buffer your symptoms is just make sure you're feeling really supported, getting extra cuddles and love and just like making you feel like it's something that you can kind of get through together. Is there any difference in cortisol levels for guys and girls in general with stress levels and coping mechanisms and how we, because we just look at us as an example, I think you're quite good at dealing with stress. I think sometimes it's that whole fight or flight <laughs> thing, think isn't I it? Sometimes you respond to things in different ways as well. Yeah, because I, I also have anxiety and I, I deal with it in different ways, but I was just curious to see if the actual stress hormone is 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 different. Yeah, some, re- I mean, because we're all so different, some men and women will have the exact same responses, um, but some 
but there there tends to be a trend towards there's a difference and like i said that also changes across the cycle so in the luteal phase for some reason cortisol levels in women tend to be more similar than they are in men mm. uh to, to in men um and that whole like fight and flight um kind of responses is also different so men tend to fight and women tend to what we call tend and befriend so they'll look after the people who are around them and they're more more likely to confide in in kind of the close people in their kind of relationships which is why we think that relationships are a really important predictor of mental health for women they really need like it's not about having loads of friends it's just having really like supportive people in your network whereas mm-hmm. men are more likely to not depend on others when they're in a stressful scenario oh, wow interesting mm. one of the things i mean i definitely experienced last year with stress was gut issues as well that was the first time i've ever really experienced i was a weird i didn't feel stressed but i, I was obviously internally yeah. stressed and it wasn't for any bad reasons it was because i was actually proposing to lucy last year and i was stressed about getting a ring over to another country proposing doing everything else and I was going through all these kind of checks with the doctors and stuff because they thought I might even have IBS. I didn't know what was causing these symptoms. And it was just so strange that in the end it came down to stress. I know that you've got yeah, a, my, had a similar thing as well. Mine was a little bit different. Um, I think a few people have had what I've had before. I used to have really, really bad stomach issues after I stopped swimming. Just really bad stomach issues. So I got tested for like maybe two years, went private in the end because I couldn't get the answers through um, the NHS. And I had um, scans, the all the, I don't know what they're called. Ultrasound. Yeah, ultrasound, <laughs> the internal scans, everything. They didn't know it was endometriosis or PID, just something. And I ended up having a laparoscopy, the little hmm. surgery. And all he said was, yeah, everything's just a bit inflamed. Try the FODMAP diet. And this after three years, so I was like, oh my God, I'll do anything. And I did this FODMAP diet for maybe two months. And then you said you're just always anxious, you're so stressed. And then I got therapy, great, loved it. And my symptoms started to disappear. Um, so I had surgery because of like mass amounts of stress and anxiety, but it took like three or four years and you diagnosed me. Like it just, um, so that was actually a really hard time because I know a lot of people go through that and they do have endometriosis, but then so many people have a similar gut issue and just never get, diagnosed yeah that's it's completely true there's a huge overlap between ibs and endometriosis and actually they both can coexist um i'm surprised that you got to the point of like having surgery before they even tried kind of first line kind of management of ibs yeah and uh, like i remember you know when i first started working as a doctor and using therapy as a management for IBS is something I didn't really think would ever work. And I've seen people, especially women, who've tried loads of different medications, have tried the FODMAP diet, low FODMAP diet, and really restrictive diets. And it's been therapy that's been the thing that's improved their symptoms. And it just shows you how strong that like gut-brain connection is, like you experienced. And it's a two-way link. So kind of what goes on in your head can kind of correspond to your gut so you'll have those terrible symptoms if you're stressed but vice versa like if you are good to your gut and you eat healthy foods we see that correspond to better mental health and better cognition so it's like it's such a fascinating overlooked condition Mm. or set of i guess a system yeah 
Yeah, so basically both kind of interact with each mm, other. Yeah. What, what is the name of that? Vegas name. Vegas name. Yeah. I always get wrong. That's what you tell me. I need to go up to here in the ice bath and yeah. I just can't do it yet. Have you I'm done any research against ice bath or have you used ice I baths before? I don't really. I'm a big wuss when it comes to cold. Like my <laughs> boyfriend will do two minutes every morning in, the, in like cold shower. Yeah. But um, I'll, I'll do cryotherapy sometimes. But like submersing myself in cold water, I find it really hard. Yeah. There, are, there are multiple benefits for it. I'm definitely not negating the science. I just, I guess, try to convince myself that there's other easier ways mm. I can get this done. Yeah. I did that this morning because yeah. he got in and I went, nope, 6 a.m. I was always, I was always very dubious about them. And like, especially because of, I, I don't think in terms of the research, there was that much in terms of if physically doing too much for people as yeah. opposed to doing like cool downs or warmth and stuff. But then experiencing it from a, like a mental mindset perspective, it just felt great doing it in the morning, didn't it? Yeah, I think it's, it's hard. I think because it is also that thing is like the hardest thing I'll probably do in the day, like having to submerge myself. And then when I get out, I just feel like energized. I feel yeah. good. I feel like tingly, warm. And then when we go to the gym, I feel like awake for the day as opposed to being like half asleep. So I think those benefits have just been really good since that we've noticed. And I think because our mood is then good to kickstart the day, the like sort of us feeling stressed or anxious and stuff is is then a little bit lower yeah it does give you a huge like dopamine reward and it's more of a graded response than like if you were like gambling for example and you get like a huge hit and it drops mm -hmm. so there's like some theory that that's why i can like keep your mood elevated across the day for you personally because i know you worked as a doctor during covid um i can imagine stress was mm -hmm. quite high in general but what are some of your best coping mechanisms for stress for you personally or advice you can give to other people as well? Um, I always say that stress management's like so you can't prescribe it because it's so different to each person. Mm -hmm. And um, I know what worked for me is I've had a lot of therapy, like from dealing with grief as a child, but also from experiencing all the trauma of working as a COVID doctor for two years. like. That was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And we never talked about it until like I then got signed off for sick leave and I never went back because I just couldn't. Exactly and, stress, sorry, yeah. Yeah, with yeah. stress. And and it was when things were like almost fine within the NHS. So it was almost like I was I felt like I was holding my breath and then mm. I was working in outpatient clinics and I just couldn't do anymore. I just couldn't move forward. Um and I know that my, how I've, my experience is like not dissimilar to like lots of other doctors and nurses. But I think a huge part of that as well is that I didn't have also my network around me because we were living through a pandemic. I couldn't just like, you know, see people. I was living alone at the time. So relationships are super important for me. Um, movement is like a non-negotiable in my day even if it's like uh just going outside for a walk but it will be like running or going to the gym or doing some form of activity bouldering whatever it is i think that's like incredibly important and the research is so profound in the benefit on your mental health um i'm a big believer in journaling as well and like practicing gratitude and that can also like again the research around these things which are often seen as like really woo and a bit too spiritual is really compelling. Mm -hmm. So yeah, for me, it's like those things. And also as I've gotten older, I've realized that, you know, drinking too much alcohol is never going to make me feel good, especially mm -hmm. if I'm like at a certain point in my cycle. 
um, not getting enough sleep. Like sleep is probably the, the most powerful thing I think that we all have in our toolbox that we can use. And they would be the primary things, you know, it's nothing fancy, it's nothing groundbreaking, but just like getting the basics right, make you feel really grounded. Can I just ask you, what was, what was the tipping point for you of, of why you maybe left um, working for the NHS? NHS. I, well, I was planning on doing it for a while um, because of all of the work I was doing outside and it was just kind of like doing two full-time jobs. And the week I was leaving to write my book, which just came out in the summer, was the week I was recruited as a COVID doctor. So I was leaving on a, fr- on a Wednesday and then I was back in work on the Friday as a COVID doctor. So I basically said goodbye and then I came back in and then I didn't leave for two years. Um, but I, I kind of took two weeks off, like sick leave, didn't leave my bed. And then at that point I was like, this is my out. I need to just mm-hmm. like, you know, mm-hmm. leave. And I've left as a never say never, I might go back. But the work that I do now is like, I, I find it incredibly rewarding and my mental health is exceedingly better. And I feel very grateful for that. And I know that, um, you know, there's a lot of doctors and nurses who would maybe love to leave the NHS. But I always stress that, you know, I built my brand over 10 years. So at the point where I was leaving, it was there for me mm-hmm. and um it still allows me to like work in in kind of a medical capacity and do a lot of research i work on the advisory board for whoop for example i do some like guest lecturing so it's a way that i can kind of take my expertise in a different direction and mm-hmm. where that leads me i'm not really sure but i feel i feel very lucky for what i do the reason why i ask is and i suppose it's quite relevant to today's conversation is that on last week's podcast we spoke about and there's been an example within within our wider uh, coaching community of someone who's just left the NHS as well it was a, a nurse and we were speaking about this last week and, and maybe also stress kind of plays into this it's about the the level of hard that people are willing to accept in their life and there's this I can't remember what the quote was what the numbers are but it's sometimes better to have a hard life than a, just a kind of like reasonably hard life because then at least that pushes you over the edge to make a change to into maybe the grass is green on the other side and it was a it was a nurse who was part of our wider coaching community who listened to the podcast and said she'd left her job as a nurse after years of being like beaten and assaulted and loads of other things that have gone mm. on i don't know exactly where she was working but it was that that kind of made her reassess what she was doing because she was probably just falling underneath that ceiling of not having maybe enough stress or, or things being difficult enough to make her change. I feel like a lot of people probably go through life and just live with underneath that ceiling of where things aren't quite hard enough to make them kind of make that switch and make a change. Yeah. I think it'd be difficult for a lot of people. And I guess stress can kind of play into that as well. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think like now more than ever, like working in the healthcare system in the UK and across the world is just incredibly difficult. And like, doctors are going on strike now and like a lot of people are kicking off on that and like kicking off and they did you know when the nurses went on strike but if when you work in those conditions and you get so you get paid pennies for what you do and no one gets into those jobs for money but if you can't pay the bills Mm -hmm. and you're getting really poorly treated and you're expected to show up and do extra hours it's just like basic human rights Mm. that people should be paid fairly and I completely support any healthcare workers who are striking. 
I used to work for the police and I think it's a similar thing. People just expect you to be a robot. You're yeah. not a human being. You were just there to, to serve, to save. And your pe- hours. Yeah, as people well. don't think like you have emotions or that you go home and you've got this this other life. And mm-hmm. what, I suppose one of the big things for me, and again, a question for you is after I finished, my sleep my sleep was definitely 100 percent better because shift work just even at an early age kind of played the things a little bit mood energy levels but i know there's for people who do stay in those jobs like the police like the nhs who continue to do that shift work the the detriments to their health and sleep go way beyond that don't they yeah yeah it's a it's a really sad truth that you know shift workers tend to have worse health outcomes and like and kind of a larger increase in in death and that seems to be largely related to the the shift patterns so working at night because when we're working at night we're not only like awake when we should be sleeping and when we're when we're sleeping we do kind of all our healing our growth hormone is released all of those kind of recovery uh, processes happen but also we naturally will eat when we're awake. So we're eating during the biological night. And at that time, our body isn't primed to take on nutrients. And yeah, so- I know, know about that. KFC is like a nice restaurant. <laughs> sit in the car park at 3 a.m. there's nothing else available. It's like, you know, we just had McDonald's open across the road um, or Domino's you could get ordered. And eating that at those kind of foods, I'm definitely a person for like all foods fit. But at that time of the night, your body cannot tolerate them. And you see huge increases in insulin. You see huge increases in triglycerides in the bloodstream, which is fine if you do it once every now and then after a night out. But if that's what you do for your job and you're doing that on the regular, you are slamming your body and it will lead to really poor health effects in the future. Um, It's tricky though, because like if you've worked in it, I know how hard it can be. And at like 3 a.m., if you've just experienced something really traumatizing, all you want is sugar and caffeine and foods that make you feel good. And you don't want to fast or have a protein shake. Yeah. (laughs) With obviously sleep as well, shift work, or obviously you did your shift work, you've probably done your fair share. Um, I'd, I've never done shift work personally, but I used to have to wake up at four o'clock in the morning to swim. And I used to go to sleep at like 10, 11. And I did it for like 10 years. Mm. Um, my mum, bless her, used to take me as well. And there's that whole thing about you can never get back those hours of sleep after doing, like having lack of sleep or doing shift work and how it affects your body. Because we know sleep is such a vital human function for performance, for how we feel. And I just wanted to understand a little bit more about the sleep debt and why you can't get those hours back like later on in life. Sleep deprivation over a long period of time can have a huge impact on your health. But I don't agree with the fact that you can't reclaim that or improve things from baseline. Like even one night sleep can like massively, one night of bad sleep can massively like affect even your immune system. So you're like 60% more susceptible to colds or don't quote me on that stuff, but it's something massive like that. Mm. So even one night bad sleep can affect you. But on the flip side, one night of good sleep can also rectify a lot of things. And so if you were someone who did shift work or you got up early for whatever sport for years and years, that's not to say that you are like destined to have poor health in the future especially what you can do today and whenever i talk about sleep i'm always very conscious of the fact that i no longer work 
work shift patterns. I also don't have young children keeping mm -hmm. me awake. And a lot of people who kind of definitely are in my audience and perhaps are listening to this podcast are doing those things. And it can be really hard because they're like, oh, it's all well and good. You get into bed at nine. I just can't do that. But there is like, you can do things within the day, like napping is fine. Doing things like yoga nidra, which is like a really deep meditative state. And you can do like YouTube videos to see how you do that. Even 20 minutes of that can be really restorative. So I'm very much of the approach, like it's not like all is lost. If you're in those situations, just do what you can. And all those little things add up. I think you sometimes don't realize the impact of sleep until something starts to affect it. I had surgery in January didn't I and I was literally I think I was getting like three hours sleep didn't I oh, like measuring like measuring on my whoop I used I was getting like three hours of REM sleep like mm. most nights I was just like a log wasn't I yeah and then I went from that to getting no sleep and in the day I just felt horrific like and it was because it was I was almost like it was almost sleep deprivation because of the pain that was in at night yeah I was up all the time and in the day I couldn't sleep and it was it was just frustrating more than anything and it wasn't until I had something taken away from me that I'd probably just taken for granted that I was always a good sleeper. I, the impacts were incredible, weren't they? Like what I was like in a day, I couldn't focus on anything. My memory was terrible. Um, energy was terrible. My mood was terrible. But, I mean, I wasn't really doing much sports anyway, but I just felt weak in general. It's it's so kind of surprising. Then you start obviously supplementing with caffeine, which is the drug that everyone I loves. I mean, I've had, I've, had my, really... <laughs> I've had my, I love caffeine anyway. I have my fair share this morning, but how does how do you think that then affects sleep in the long run especially people who are maybe almost substituting sleep with caffeine i think caffeine is never going to replace what sleep provides you know like sleep is a deeply restorative process and like a, a huge amount of our like anabolic hormones are released during the night um and so you need that to recover what's what caffeine does is it reduces the feeling of sleepiness but it doesn't reduce your need for sleep so it will make you feel more alert but that's all it's going to do and so i think it's an incredible drug from a performance enhancement point of view it can it's great for sports performance when used correctly i think if you use it incorrectly if you abuse it it can have really detrimental effects on your health for the everyday person then because like most people usually wake up, have a coffee. Some I know like my mum, she would even have like tea and coffee sometimes at night and she's like, it doesn't really affect me. Mm. How can the everyday person better utilize caffeine? Because I think what people, a lot of people don't know is the, the half-life that comes yeah. along with it as well. How do you think people can better optimize their everyday use of caffeine? Yeah, I think we all know those people who can have a cup of tea at like night or like a coffee and we all metabolize caffeine, uh, caffeine differently so some people metabolize it really quickly um some people metabolize it really slowly so the half time which is the, the time taken for like half of the substance so caffeine to be metabolized from your body varies from two to ten hours uh, in people so if you are the 10 hour metabolizer you could have your midday coffee and then at 10 p.m at night you're still metabolizing it so it's going to keep you up um so as a rule of thumb just try go decaf after midday and also just be very conscious of your own kind of uh, personal susceptibility because if you're a person who takes caffeine even if it's just coffee and you've got like heart palpitations or you've got gut issues after that like maybe it's not the substance mm -hmm. you should be using like I know for me I'm like a two cup limit anything more than that and my heart's like through the roof and I feel anxious on edge for the rest of the day 
But then there's, you know, some people I went to med school and then be on like 10 cups a day and fine, completely chill. So just kind of understanding that. But even if you're someone who thinks it doesn't affect your sleep, I guarantee you on some level it is, even if it's just affecting the quality of your sleep. It's the same with alcohol. Yeah, the, alcohol the, has yeah, a Yeah, alcohol kills real, me as well. Yeah, kills me. Even I'm one not, glass of wine and my whoop is like redlining. Yeah, mine goes like 2%. <laughs> and I'm like, I could run a half marathon, I'm still in green. And then I have some alcohol and I'm like red completely. <laughs> it's just, um, but that's actually really interesting in terms of alcohol. Like I, I like a casual drink. Mm. I'm not a massive drinker. I don't, I don't love it. I don't like being hung over. It's not my, uh, my cup of tea. But obviously alcohol does have an effect on sleep as we've just spoken about, but also performance and how we feel about ourselves. It definitely doesn't do a lot for me mentally. I get really um, quite anxious after I've had alcohol. But what, why does it, why, why does it affect our sleep so much? What happens when we've had alcohol and then sleep and it's just a Yeah, I think um, because most people who, who I'm sure have listened to this or listening to this podcast have drank alcohol at some point in their life. And typically you'll find that you will fall asleep quickly. Mm. That's not untrue. That will happen. It can help you fall asleep quickly, but it affects the quality of your sleep. So you'll have a lot of light sleep and you'll have more disrupted sleep. And so you're never going to go into that like slow wave, deep sleep, which is really important and also REM sleep. So, um, Matthew Walker calls REM sleep emotional first aid and it's so true and it's why like when you're hungover because you've had such little of it you feel so like emotional towards yeah, anything do. So and sad. that's why <laughs> so yeah if when it comes to alcohol I'm like I'm completely with you I think like I'm like there's a time and a place for it but when you even like one glass or one glass of alcohol can does show effects on your sleep even if you think that it doesn't. So I'd be really conscious of that. I'm not saying never drink alcohol, but I'm just saying, you know, when it comes to like performance metrics or if you've got a big event or you need to show up and be your best self, maybe you just like forego the alcohol the night before. Mm-hmm. Or just don't check your whoop the next day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> t- take it off. <laughs> That's why I always find it works best, because I get super anxious after alcohol as well. Um, okay. So it's something that always, always affects me. I know that you mentioned, I think just, previous in the conversation about how did you say alcohol affects women differently depending on whether up to the menstrual cycle um i don't think i did say that maybe but i'm, I'm, I'm sure i'm, I'm sure it, well i was gonna say how does it affect maybe does it affect men and women differently um or is there any research that kind of states that women tolerate it like less well um that's in part due to our body weight um but also the size of our livers as well um and there's some difference in like the enzymes as well that we kind of metabolize at so we're more likely to be affected by the detrimental effects of alcohol although both men and women can uh, affect can be affected i think when it comes to the kind of premenstrual phase that one week before the next period that's a time where I typically tell women to avoid alcohol because it's so tied to our to poor mental health and anxiety. So if you are someone who, who always finds your moods a bit off, I guarantee you, if you remove alcohol from the equation, it will significantly improve your mental health. And that's something that I've personally found works with me. I also use Whoop and I use that to like track how these things have improved. And it's incredible like once you just start accounting for these things and again like listening to your body 
it's it's just so powerful and it can have like a huge effect it's tricky though because i know that we all live in a very social time so you don't want to be like oh i can't you know go out but there's so many different like options for like non-alcoholic mm-hmm. um kind of drinks and things like that now yeah it's also i I used to find, but even at uni, I wasn't a massive drinker. Maybe like first year I was. There was a lot of social pressure of mm. people saying, oh, you're so boring if you don't drink. And I used to sit on that thought quite a lot. And I knew I wasn't boring, but I was always really affected by those comments. But I think over the past like three or four years, it has shifted a little bit more where it's not as taboo or you're not a weirdo if you don't drink alcohol because loads of people go sober now and it's almost done a 360 and it's seen as a bit cool if you're, yeah. if you're going sober. Um, I know you wanted to do sobriety at some point as well. Yeah, so I'd like to do it for a year when that year is. I haven't quite decided. No, you've not, <laughs> not decided ready for it yet. yet. Yeah. Just because this year we've got the wedding and we've got all the things going on. So I definitely don't think this is the year where... Maybe when I'm alcohol, pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't drink, I don't yeah. drink. Um, but yeah. But I think sleep's definitely become like a sexier topic to speak about. And there's, mm. I think because of that, you see a lot of weird and wonderful things in terms of habits and behaviors that people are doing to get yeah. better sleep how much do you think like modern day society has affected our sleep obviously like blue light we have way more screen time um we're always preoccupied with stuff for maybe high levels of stress and then because of that you see people reverting back to a lot of old habits i mean especially people i don't know if you've ever seen some of the content like the liver king who's <laughs> a bit of a strange and wonderful man himself but i think he's he sleeps on like hard wooden planks and stuff and tries to sleep as it's low extreme, as he though, low it? as, yeah some, <laughs> some strange he's trying to do like as much as like as our ancestors did years ago Cave to try life. and optimize sleep apparently but what would you give to kind of like the everyday person as your top tips to try and optimize their sleep that they that the everyday person will be able to implement as well yeah i would start by saying you don't need to sleep on a wooden board um <laughs> yeah, avoid that your wooden pillow i think that, obsessed, like boards, that yeah. obsession yeah. with what like our ancestors did can also like just it's not like it's grounded in science so you just kind of like i think can very much lead yourself down the wrong path mm-hmm. in terms of like things that do work i think a lot of people do know what they are already that like the whole light thing is really important so viewing early morning light um and also making sure you're not viewing light later in the night so in the first 30 minutes of waking you should ideally view early morning light not through a window but outside or and even on a cloudy day and if you can't do that then get a sad lamp um i've got one that just sits on my desk so that like when i first get up write my to-do list i can sit in front of it for 30 minutes um that's one um huge thing because that will kind of set your circadian rhythm for the day so it'll make you feel sleepier earlier and then in the night you know two to three hours before you go to bed you want to reduce the amount of light you're seeing not just blue light emitting advice devices but also like turning off overhead lights and just using lamps and can be really helpful and not using netflix and things like that which no one ever listens to when i give that advice i don't listen to it either um but that's another thing making sure that your room is cool dark and quiet as well so turning off radiators or opening a window making sure you've got like kind of heavy curtains or wearing an eye mask and earplugs if you need them. Um, Other things that can help is like your timing of food. So making sure that you're having your last meal three hours before bed, which in this day and age people typically don't do, but it will take that time to metabolize food. And that can also affect your quality of sleep. And we see that in the WHOOP user data as well. When people eat later, 
they all have less good quality sleep. So it's it's something to bear in mind. If you're someone who's working late and you get home late, try to have your bigger meal earlier in the day and have like a lighter meal before you go to bed. Um, they would be my biggest things. Another thing is if you are uh, a ruminator like me and I like will sit up and think about everything I need to do the next day, write a to-do list. And that's also backed by science that can help people fall asleep seven to eight minutes faster if you just write down what you need to do the next day. So you've kind of brain dumped it. Yeah, I used to do that and usually get up. No, I used to do it on my phone now, so you still get notifications. Like, what's that? It's like just yeah, me writing a so bullet point get, list of what's happening to you. Because then you go in yeah, on your yeah, phone. But yeah. I, I recently got one of the eye masks from Whoop, where yeah. it really sucks into your face. And honestly, no, when when you go to bed, she looks like a you're like a nineteen <laughs> you're like a nineteen twenties pilot because she got this bin bag thing it's over not her a head. Bin bag, it's it's a like a nest, hair bonnet. and she's got these big and massive goggles. My... I say to every night, where are we flying to tonight? Yeah, <laughs> so and last funny. night was New York. I get your photo with a brother. But yeah. um, I honestly, so my sleep has improved. You take the piss out of it, but honestly, <laughs> my sleep since, because even I sometimes lie in bed pre-eye mask and we sometimes just have my eyes open because I think about a lot of things, as, as you said, put the eye mask on. Even if I open my eyes, it's pitch black. Yeah. So it's still completely dark and my sleep has been 100%. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually, and then you don't obviously just take it off in the morning. Mask? It is a whoop yeah. mask. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, it cuts it. It doesn't cut your face, but it's, it's more um, tight fitting. So a lot of sleep masks, they really hurt you your can, eyes. Yeah, and you can see that light. Um, but this one actually comes out your face a little bit, but yeah, so my I sleep's like been fantastic. Got like these, I think the creams are for sleep and then you're spraying like these voodoo things over pillows and stuff. I do spray lavender yeah. spray. I don't, th- I think it's more of a placebo. Yeah. Um, but I've sometimes really struggled with sleep because I'm so active. My body still feels like it's active and it's really hard to settle. Mm. So I have done sleep sprays. I try and do no screens, reading before bed, low light everywhere. I'm a candle type of person. And since I started to become more aware of sleep, as Ben said, when it got a bit more like cooler to have eight hours of sleep at night and things like that, my performance in training, running, lifting has just been like so much better since I've actually been able to sleep properly because I think back when we were swimmers and we were supposed to be the best of the best I was on like four hours sleep that's ridiculous and it always seems crazy to me that we were training for really high level sport Mm. yet we had to be at the pool at half four in the morning and I can I, I understand we had to train at a certain time before college or high school but to me it's really backwards considering the research into sleep we were all completely sleep deprived yeah yeah it's funny because like when you're even when you're at uni you'll like pull all nighters or you'll stay up really late to like get cram as much work in but like the research shows that that will just like diminish your kind of recall of things mm-hmm. and so the most effective thing you can do is actually just go to bed yeah but no sleep on your it. revision books okay <laughs> it'll, it'll sink into your brain that way i was looking at something a while ago and i don't know how much validity there is in it but there was correlation i think it was causation between the people who are getting lack of sleep but then also weight gain because mm. of um hunger hormones and stuff like that and those yeah. spin-offs um and i guess as well if people are asleep they're not eating so if you get more sleep there's less chance of that that food window being open what what is kind of the the is there any logic behind that in terms yeah. of correlating sleep with with weight gain and weight loss yeah so sleep deprivation will cause an increase in ghrelin which is like the hunger hormone um and we do see that so if you're if that's if you are consistently doing that you're naturally gonna increase your hunger increase your food intake um 
also like naturally if there's more time in the day you'll typically eat more food so it can impair your ability to lose weight if that's something that you're trying to do um yeah i guess these things like in isolation won't have a huge impact but if you're doing it day on day it can have a, yeah. a big impact in the long term i suppose those habitual things as well because i am one of like the biggest snackers ever so, if, so for me it wasn't, didn't you like setting a morning alarm i used to set like a nighttime alarm like right ben you go into bed at 10 o'clock because between 10 and 10 30 was like my snacking window and i could get like an extra <laughs> 400 calories per day in but accumulative over the week that was like a lot 4, and it was, yeah. it was spoiling my, my, my weight loss and stuff as well but i think that's definitely something i've got to grip with more and sleep just being more more aware of my sleep i think that's where even whoop maybe from a placebo effect has helped because it helps me be more aware of my sleeping habits that i then implement even though even if there wasn't any kind of thing to, to back it up it just made me more aware of anything with my sleep which has been great yeah i agree one of the posts that you did actually i saw on your instagram i thought it was absolutely fantastic i don't know if you were going to touch on this um you did a post talking about nutrition and the differences between girls and guys and obviously there is a difference in terms of calories um but you did a fantastic post on it's okay if you're eating more than your partner <laughs> it's okay if you're snacking when they're not hungry and it really resonated with me because i eat a lot and i a lot of the time with my events and things i eat more than ben and i used to be like oh my god like how like how can i be eating more than ben and it wasn't till i started to understand it's for a different purpose and it doesn't matter if he isn't eating what mm. i'm eating um but i thought that post you did would be so helpful to obviously a lot of women yeah i was surprised at how well that post did and i think it was something that i realized in my relationship um we were traveling at the time when i posted it and it was my boyfriend's videographer who was like made a cut like a quite a throwaway comment that you know i eat as much as david or that i eat a lot of food or whatever and um for me it's like something i'm very aware of that that's just who I am and what I do. But I think for like a lot of women, they would find that like, oh no, have I done something wrong? Am I overeating? Mm -hmm. I did that post and went viral on TikTok and the, the comments are so interesting. Like just some, I guess we have this narrative that like women should always have smaller portions. Women should always go for, you shouldn't eat when your partner's not eating. Um, like you know, we should have, we look similar to them. Like when naturally women will car carry more body fat. Um, it's fine to have different like preferences. It's fine to have different experiences with fitness. It's fine to eat the same amount of them, especially if you are training at a high level. Um, like, yes, there is, it does hold true that men will require more calories on average. But again, we're all individuals and just lumping men and women into different or into categories like that is just like, not really it's nonsensical mm. and when you spell it out for people in that way they're like oh yeah this is actually fine mm -hmm. um so yeah i do i'm really happy that that kind of resonated with you because it seemed to resonate with loads of women yeah and just like untangling that for some people is like really important mm. i think with a lot of things that they're generalized aren't they? they're not not specific mm. but then also when you're always seeing the recommended daily calorie intake for men and women being different across the board 24 7 on food levels whatever it may be it's always gonna sit in the the back of your mind isn't it yeah yeah that's true and i think like those are population averages mm -hmm. that are probably like 
a little less generous than they need to be, especially for very active people. And yes, you can use them as a guide, especially if you're someone who really like struggles with that or you're trying to be in a calorie deficit. But I think for like vast majority of people who are just trying to be healthy and aren't focused on that, like you don't need to live to those rigid calorie rules like you don't need to you'll naturally fall into where your body needs to be if you let it be intuitive Mm -hmm. and I think more and more people are moving towards that approach well I think those kind of guidelines fall to the wayside as soon as you're seeing a bowl of cornflakes on the the recommended yeah. allowance. Have you seen thirty grams of cornflakes? Oh, yeah, it's like five cornflakes. I think I must have like I pulled a hundred cornflakes the other day. Yeah, and I don't. The 30 I grams don't do the like, recommended you know, amount. Blew away. What, right. One of the things that we've talked about before, and I've had it. I think you may have had it because I was training for the marathon last year. You may have had it when you trained for the ultra. Is um, runner's gut? Yeah, it's something that I'd never experienced before, and so I started doing more long distance running because when I was doing that as well, because I'm a bit of a bigger runner i was consuming more foods and it just wasn't sitting right what what is the thing that causes that it's a couple of things and so the main thing is like when you're exercising especially at high intensity or for like a long period of time blood is diverted away from your gut towards like your working muscles and your heart and your lungs and so the absorption is reduced so anything that's in your gut will typically just go through um the other thing will be like the mechanical movement so if you're running up and down that's just like stuff sloshing Mm. up and down that can cause cramping and gut issues or if you're bent over on a bike um adrenaline and cortisol are higher when you're exercising that can also affect your like fight or flight system which also tells everything to evacuate and then if you're taking things like gels and stuff that aren't like easily like um absorbed that can also affect like your absorption so it'll make you feel like you need to go to the toilet so when it comes to that it's hard to avoid when you're doing really long endurance training but the best thing to do is to train your gut in advance so like people who are doing ultras will also have already at that point trained their gut to tolerate different things try not to try anything new on kind of race day find out what gels work for you because some of them will have different ratios of glucose and fructose and they won't work for you and yeah i think it's really trial and error and making sure you're not having like huge amounts of fiber the night before or anything that you know will like affect your gut but yeah it's, it's it's one of those things that it's likely to happen even if you do tick all the boxes mm-hmm. especially if you're like on your feet for hours and hours it's definitely trial and error <laughs> i had to just i don't leave for a single run without it um but no, when I was doing mass amounts of miles, I just had to test loads of different food. Like potatoes work really well for me. So I had to cook potatoes, but then things just like a snack bar wouldn't work. Mm. Um, and then I had to find a really specific gel. That was amazing. I tried some that I just can't even, just awful times on a run, um, but it's definitely trial and yeah. error. And that's why, cause those people ask me, oh, what, like, what do you take? I'm thinking, it's very if I tell you you might shit yourself so I can't <laughs> I'm not I can't I hold my hands up it was always really hard and people ask so it's better to just say try loads of different things and then see what works for you yeah because it's hard yeah I was on a long run with one of my friends recently and she I can't remember the name of it but she had like this like non-flavored gel with her that looked terrible it just looked like 
it's basically like glucogel that we give to people who are having a hypo in hospital <laughs> and so she was like just having that but she like you like the week before had a really terrible situation and she was like i just need to find a gel that isn't going to offset like cause any symptoms and she loved that i don't know what the name are i'm sure if people google them but you can find like very neutral like non-gut upsetting ones and mm. um, that can be effective or maybe just like taking like a sports drink that has electrolytes as yeah. well can can be really helpful i think one of the ones that kipchoge was using was like based on that like it's really really good for your gut because they were like, I don't know what was in it, but they were really These naturally were very, used, and, but they they're were quite, quite expensive. expensive. Yeah. I mm. mean, it's Kipchoge, isn't it? Yeah. But that's probably why, because everyone would want to use what he's having. Yeah, I mean, that, that so was fast. something that was even weird for me, because in the marathon, I think I was taking the, the gels every 45 minutes, just because obviously he's trying to optimize performance. So, but I didn't really notice anything in my stomach, maybe because it's just one day, but it was fine. I was taking my protein yeah, ones. Yeah, if you have some issues, okay. you know about it. One of the yeah. things that I saw, I saw on like Instagram quite often is, um, more so women will post like videos or picture themselves bloated. For me, I, as a guy, I don't get as bloated as often unless I've done a multi-pack of monsters or I've been for like <laughs> a man versus food size Nando's. Do women experience bloating more than men and, and, and maybe why? Yeah, they do um, typically. So bloating is a symptom and not like a condition. So it could be like down to multiple things. Um, but women are more likely to experience gut issues like IBS and um, other functional gut issues. So that's one of the common causes, but also obviously your menstrual cycle um, can like massively impact like bloating. It seems that I think also if we go back to the whole like anxiety gut brain axis thing, if women are typically more likely to experience anxiety as well, they're more likely to have upset gut issues. And I know as a nutrition doctor, 90% of the patients that I've treated and 90% of the women I speak to are all have gut issues. And so it's, there's definitely something there. That's not to say that men don't experience bloating, but I think there's lots of things that make us more susceptible to having it happen to us. I think a little bit of bloating is also normal. And so I'll be really careful not to like pathologize it. Mm -hmm. Like it is sometimes like, you know, if you are just, premenstrual you will feel bloated yeah. and and th and you can do all the things in the world you can avoid salt you can move your body you can get as much sleep and it will still happen and that's just that's just hormones and biology and it's not harmful it's just uncomfortable mm -hmm. yeah because that's one of the things that i always see you either get people on tiktok or instagram like bloating's absolutely completely normal then you have the other end being like, if you're bloated, it's not normal at all. But there's just probably a line like I blow and the only time it gets really, really painful is when I'm severely stressed yeah. and I get the worst stomach pain, but I, I'm aware of what that is now. And for those people who get severe pain, is that more so when it's, that's not that normal? Yeah, if you have bloating every day and it's not going away and it's severely painful or it's like, significantly impacting your quality of life and you can't do the things you enjoy then that's definitely abnormal and you should see mm -hmm. your doctor or if you're getting other like really debilitating symptoms like you're really gassy you've got loads of pain you're really fatigued they're also signs but if it like comes up and down after food or at the end of the day or a part of your cycle then that's just something that you kind of have to accept yeah i think we're so used to seeing women with very flat tummies and that's just not really how our, we're like anatomically built like we should have a little bit of a pooch because that's where our womb sits so 
it's it's kind of just normalizing that everybody's different and women have naturally curvier bodies than men i think <laughs> disney are probably definitely guilty for, for portraying some of that stereotype of women but oh, yeah, they are. i think the other thing you, you'll see off the back of it is companies who will jump on it and be trying to sell different products to to be a solution to that cause yeah. and we often like see shit in different arenas for that but what would your kind of immediate go to i know this is going to be very probably general advice because it's going to be specific to each individual what can what can women do to better their gut health what would your kind of go-to be so that that people could maybe implement straight away first of all i would say like please don't get like trapped into the tiktok belief that there's like a supplement on the market that's mm. going to cure your bloating if you have bloating like get a diagnosis first because you don't know what what's causing mm. it um and you know, like this loads of trends like the internal shower which is like drinking water and chia seeds and things like that I've like seen that. The internal shower it's called the internal shower yeah. <laughs> i'm not seeing this one chia it's seeds like, in the water yeah and lemon juice and you yeah. drink it like three times a day and basically it's just kind of like a laxative process and um, chia seeds are great for you but like you do not need to be drinking chia seed water and there's it's there's like no evidence it's going to massively improve your gut health or reduce bloating um unless you're severely constipated but what i would say is it's the same really for men and women in terms of like what can help your gut um stress management is top line so that's you know like make sure you're getting a handle on that um getting as much diversity of food in your diet diversity of plant-based foods it's not about like going vegan it's just making sure that like across the week you're like including different fruits and vegetables different like pulses legumes the more you can the better so the goal is to get to 30 which seems like a lot to 30 different plant-based foods but that also includes things like herbs and spices it includes like different types of nuts so instead of like going for almonds get a mixed bag of nuts or have blueberries instead of raspberries one week so just like change it up because in general the more diverse your diet the more diverse your gut microbiome which means the better your health will be that's uh, another important thing um try to avoid foods like uh, sugar-free foods and things like that which can potentially disrupt your microbiome if you're having loads of it but also the most important thing is they've got sugar alcohols which can contribute to bloating so if you are someone who's a very sensitive gut i would just be careful of those mm-hmm. um the other things i would say is just make sure you're getting enough fiber and like everyone knows what to do there. going for the whole grain versions versus like white versions and um, it's not to say that this has to be like an every meal thing but just being a bit more conscious of it and they would be like my most important things that you can do like we also know that like sleep and exercise and not smoking are also really important for your gut as well amazing well i think um they're going to be really just, helpful we're just so many we're people. probably up, taking up enough of your time we really thank you for coming down today i think there'll be a lot of people who will really get a lot from this conversation and have a lot of take-homes from it but i think then leading on from that even more so i think there's probably a lot more golden nuggets that will be with inside your book as well so do you want to tell people a bit more about where they can get that and yeah for sure um so my third book is the female factor and that came out this summer um so that's all around female health and it's broken into nutrition movement sleep and stress and how they differ uh, for women um with some recipes in there and then my first two books the food medic and the food medic for life are more nutrition based recipe books as well um and you can find all that on my website or uh, social media and i've got a podcast everything's the food medic so it's easy to find 
Amazing. So thank you so much for everyone who is watching, listening, Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, wherever you are. Make sure you tag us. And again, thank you so, so thank much. You, this was, yeah, really, really valuable. Great. Thank, thank you. you. I've just learned so much. <laughs>